Welcome to the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. In each episode, we'll talk with leading campus professionals, thought leaders, engineers, and innovators addressing the unique challenges and opportunities facing higher ed and corporate campuses. Our discussions will range from energy conservation and efficiency to planning and finance, from building science to social science, from energy systems to food systems. We hope you're ready to learn, share, and ultimately accelerate your institution toward solutions. I'm your host, Dave Carlsgott. I'm a Director of Energy and Utility Advisory Services at Brailsford and Dunleavy. There is physically no other space in our community to gather 300 people and have a community meeting other than our campus. Like that just doesn't exist. And so I bring up the analogy of it's the climate on steroids. So it's not a one time event where, you know, a baseball player, they hit a home run once in, you know, a season or something like that. You know, it's a, a player that could hit 70 home runs in a season, which is unnatural. The climate on steroids is that increased amount of water vapor in the atmosphere. I hope you are all staying safe and healthy as the world grapples with the effects of the novel coronavirus and COVID-19. Today's episode was recorded just prior to our current global pandemic. This episode deals with a different type of global threat. Unfortunately, the effects of climate change spare no state, no city, no person, nor any campus. Yet some campuses have experienced more than their fair share of climate catastrophes in the past few years. In this episode, I talk with Cherie Chastain, Sustainability Programs Manager at California State University, Chico, and Ben Newton, Environmental Sustainability Director of Central Community College in Nebraska. Cherie and Ben have faced fires, floods, and even truck-sized icebergs during their times as sustainability managers. In this interview, we discuss their responses to these unnatural disasters and their goals for rebuilding with resiliency in mind. We discuss their campuses' roles as community leaders, their plans for future climate crises, and of course, the impacts of these disasters on their student bodies. I do have to say, I struggled a little bit on whether to release this episode now, since the full effects of the current crisis are still unknown. However, after re-listening to this conversation, I found comfort and wisdom in learning how these campuses dealt with their own local crises. This interview also includes a special appearance by Chico State President Gail Hutchinson. I hope you enjoy this February 25th interview recorded at the Second Nature Climate Summit in Atlanta, Georgia. So, Shereen Ben, it's great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Well, let's just start out with uh, pro forma stuff. So tell us who you are, where you're from, and then we'll get into some of the more interesting questions. <laughs> Go ahead, Ben. I'm Benjamin Newton. I'm the Environmental Sustainability Director at Central Community College, which is in central Nebraska. And we have three campuses in Grand Island, Columbus, and Hastings. And I'm the director of all three. Great. Well, where are we right now? I guess we should say that, too. Oh, we're in Atlanta right now at the Second Nature uh, Climate Summit. Very good. All right. Cherie. Yes, I am the Campus Sustainability Manager at California State University, Chico. We're at the north end of the Sacramento Valley in Northern California. All right. Well, I thought we'd start off with our my first question being just to give me a bit of background on some of the events that you've experienced on your campuses that led to the session that I attended at the ACE conference, which led to this conversation today. Cherie, do you want to give us a little background on disasters or uh, weather events or whatever that you've kind of brought you closer to thinking about climate resilience on your campus? Yes, uh, we've experienced a lot <laughs> in the north end of California. Um, and I, I'll preface that too with uh, the city of Chico adopted a climate vulnerability assessment in 2018. It was done by a Civic Spark fellow uh, as part of the City of Chico Sustainability Task Force, and it used the CalAdapt tool to predict out what climate vulnerabilities we can expect to experience in Chico specifically. And uh, that includes extreme heat days and waves, droughts, heavy precipitation, and wildfires. And we've experienced all of those (laughs) (laughs) over the last few years. So, Did you finish um, the plan before you'd experienced them all? The plan came in the midst of all of it. So, um, you know, California and um, more so Southern California, but definitely Northern California, started experiencing extreme drought in 2013, the tail end of 2013. And that lasted for a few years, um, an extraordinary drought situation. And then that moved into... um, 
a whole lot of rain, <laughs> extraordinary precipitation, um, which filled our reservoirs and led to the Oroville Dam spillway evacuation, which was about 20 minutes south from Chico. Um, so the town of Oroville was evacuated upstream to Chico. Following on the heels of that, we had the car fire, which was in Redding, which is in our service territory. It's about 100 miles north from Chico. Um, that destroyed about a thousand homes and uh, a few lives were lost in that fire. And then a few months after that, the campfire hit and that destroyed the entire town of Paradise, which is about 15 minutes from Chico. Um, so we had about 20,000 new inhabitants to the city of Chico literally overnight. And then after that, we had another supercell downpour that parked itself on downtown Chico for 15 minutes and flooded campus and caused millions of dollars in damage. Um, so it, it just kind of keeps coming, <laughs> you know? Well, with that Armageddon sort of theme, like Ben, why don't you tell us what's going on in Nebraska? <laughs> yeah, so last year we had one of the coldest Februaries that we've had in a long time. And we had also quite a bit of snowfall. Uh, in central Nebraska as well. Uh, so with those cold temperatures in February, the ground was frozen two feet down in March. So that led up to a series of events that took place in mid-March uh, with the culmination of the bomb cyclone on my birthday. So with those cold temperatures, there was also, with the ground being frozen two feet, there, uh, there was also uh, ice that was two feet thick on the rivers. And so when we had this storm event in mid-March, there was some warm temperatures, which we don't really experience in mid-March. So in the 60s, uh, so that broke up a lot of those uh, ice jams in the rivers. Uh, and then we had something called a bomb cyclone, which is a cold hurricane, come up through the central United States. That had 70 mile an hour winds, and we go from those 60 degree days to a blizzard. Uh, and 20 degree temperatures. I think we had up to, we had a rainfall event before the blizzard as well. So when those ice jams broke up, you can imagine trucks or your pickup truck floating in the river. It was a three ton icebergs floating in the rivers, which led to a bunch of those uh, ice chunks hit a dam or a bridge. It takes out that structure. So one of the dams in our district uh, it was actually the first recorded event in history that a dam was taken out by ice chunks. Wow. And so that when that dam collapsed, that sent an 11 feet wave of water downstream, which affected everybody downstream from that dam. And so in our district alone, uh, we lost 20 bridges in that event. And then we also had you know, severe flooding events because those ice jams, they create dams uh, on their own. On their own right. Yeah, and so then that led to flooding in our entire district, which 24 of the 25 counties in our district were declared natural disaster areas by FEMA. Before I went to your session at the Asia conference, I remember talking to you guys and like, I don't know, I think I'm going to go to this other one. And then you sort of talked me into coming and I was like, yeah, what are these guys going to talk about? And then I got in there and I heard these stories. And I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> so tell me a little bit of the story of what happened on the campus as these events unfolded. And I guess for our events, um, it did lead, you know, there was spring break that week. So a lot of the students weren't there, which was fortunate. But then we have had, it affected the campus um, with all those bridges being washed out. Our college president reached out to a lot of the staff members and said, you don't have to come in to work uh, in the office. You can work remotely, um, which some of them had to for quite a while until they rerouted around those areas that were either flooded or the bridge was actually out. So those were some of the responses to that. Okay, so you went from, yeah, becoming more of a FEMA site than a campus at that point. Yeah, in, in a couple of our communities in, in Columbus, we did for sure, but not Grand Island wasn't as affected as, you know, we had discussed earlier. Right. Cherie? Our campus was an initial signatory of the, of the climate commitment um, and the resilience commitment included. We did our initial resilience indicators report in 2015. 
And the indicators that were chosen, you know, were, were things that we thought could be measured for our campus and for the city of Chico with regard to resilience. Since all of these natural disasters, it has completely changed how we're viewing resilience. Things that we didn't even know we needed to think about are now front and center for us. Um, you know, we have an entire community that was completely devastated. And so we're looking not just at physical rebuilding and infrastructure resilience, but we're looking at human resilience and a community resilience. Um, so, we're, you know, this word resilience and this idea of resilience is taking on a completely new feel for our community, and it means different things to every person. Planning for that, however, becomes incredibly difficult, right? And how you select your resilience metrics and how you start looking at this idea it becomes a big challenge and it, it kind of feels a bit overwhelming at times. You know, I'm focusing on how can our campus respond to these events that continue to happen in our community? Um, what role does our campus play? You know, there are some really interesting things that we never would have thought about, such as, you know, an entire town is completely destroyed. Researchers from across the world want to study that. So how do we as a higher education institution kind of protect our population and essentially not run interference, but serve in more of a liaison role so that we can connect researchers with other researchers doing similar work or, you know, not, not having our community feel like they're in a fishbowl. You know, that's, they're, they're already going through something completely life altering. So let's make this mentally and spiritually as easy as possible for them. There's no playbook for that, right? right? For higher education. Um, so there, there's a lot of those type of things that have arisen, um, that we're just kind of slowly working our way through as they come up. Yeah, because it's also really important work, right? Like everybody wants to know what do, what does a community do when a town next to you gets burned down? Right. What does a community do when all your bridges get taken out by right. uh, crazy icebergs? Like that wasn't even. Right. A, like, I don't think the engineers thought about that. Well, I wonder no. if this can handle a, a truck-sized iceberg coming Every down. Every iceberg. Right. Do you stress test for that? Exactly. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, these are totally out of the playbook, which is the problem, right? So, right. Yeah. You can't engineer for that. So. <laughs> so so, well, let's talk about, you said you're serving as a liaison to try to funnel the research and how, how has that worked and how have you gathered the, the researchers but also protected the citizens? Like, what, what does that look like? Well, we, we've actually um, we've created a position on our campus within our president's office, and that's the um, Wildcats Rise Community Liaison. And so she is the point of contact for Outside researchers coming in, she's doing her best to collect information on who's doing what, but that's a really, really tall task. Right. And, you know, it's taking some time, but she's done an incredible job being in the community, being present in the community, um, letting the community know that she's there for them and anything that they need, but then also, you know, connecting with other universities and institutions to, to start to build those relationships. Right, just to funnel the energy going into that. Okay, and is Wildcats Rise is that a is that a community wide? That's our kind of our campus branding for for how we're responding. Nice. It's our mascot. Very cool. Yeah. How about you, Bet? Well, I guess our emergency management office, in particular, in contrast to urban areas uh, and rural areas, they're similar to our sustainability offices. So they have a, maybe one staff member, maybe two. So then when there is this unnatural disaster, responding to those events becomes really challenging because they're working 80 hours a week and or they're in, you know up in the middle of the night. The emergency management office reached out to us through our resiliency committee and said, we really need citizens or students that, you know, want to help out in these situations. And so they offered possibly doing a training at the campus. Nice. Uh, so we had some internal grant funding that we did use for that training. And so we offered a certified uh, emergency response team training. It's a national certification and they do have a campus response team training as well. 
And so it's a 24-hour training. We did uh, four sessions, six-hour sessions during the summertime when oh, okay. students are not in session and, you know, staff may have a little bit less on their plate. Of course, the sustainability office is always going full steam. So um, <laughs> we did have things going on, but we set aside that time to also for our for my interns and staff to take part in that training. And so that training resulted in some of our students being able to be called upon if these events happen in the future. Okay, and it, that this happened after those events though? So the training was like, oh, we don't want that to happen again. Because have you had events have occurred after the training? Is it- uh, we have had events, unfortunately, happen <laughs> after the training. They, I mean, the flooding continued, uh, you know, with those high groundwater levels. Uh, it continued throughout the summer. Um, we had a really, really wet summer. You know, there was even highway or interstate 29 uh, on the Iowa-Nebraska border. It didn't open until July and, you know, it closed wow. in March. So, yeah. and that's an interstate. So we have had those events throughout the summer and we had some, you know, high windstorm events, which are happening more frequently now. That isn't the normal, I guess, for the summertime. Right. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, we're, in Seattle, we had our rainiest January ever. And, you know, it's a little annoying. It's wet, whatever. It hasn't really affected our house directly, but just heard from some friends who live just outside of the city and their road is probably cut off for as you know a year maybe it's like this massive massive construction project so it's amazing how how quickly those things change after the oroville dam spillway (laughs) similar similar situations where entire roads were completely gone for a year yeah tell tell more of the background story on that because when i was at this conference i think two years ago was when that was going on and and one of your colleagues jim pushnik was here and then he's like I have to go because my wife said we've got 20 people coming to stay at our house because they were refugees from Oroville, just south right. of you. Yeah, so tell, this, tell the story of what happened there. Yeah, that, that was an interesting one. I, I was actually um, attempting to go snowshoeing that day, and I had driven around Lake Oroville, and my husband and I were looking at it like, wow, that's really full. And you know, the road that we were on, because we had had so much rain for weeks, we didn't realize it, but the road that we were on, we got to a point where it just, it was gone. It had washed away, <laughs> just completely gone. So we thought, well, we're not going to get through this road, you know? And so we turned around and I, I think it had washed away a few weeks before and it took months for that road to be repaired. So we turned around found another place to go snowshoeing and, and got home that evening. And that's, you know, I'm getting texts from my mom, like, are you guys okay? And I was like, I don't even know what's happening. Right. Yeah, the, the town of Oroville was evacuated to Chico. So we had, you know, 100,000 people coming into Chico because it's upstream from the dam. Yeah, and it, you know, there, there, I think there was a lot of misinformation around that event that, you know, folks were afraid that the actual dam itself, the integrity of the dam was in jeopardy. Um, it's one of the largest earthen dams in the country. It's holding a great deal of water. The dam itself, the integrity of the dam was fine. It was the spillway, the emergency spillway, because we'd had so much water that the level of the reservoir rose so high. And so they activated the emergency spillway and the integrity of the emergency spillway was greatly undermined. And that's that's what led to massive amounts of flooding downstream. So it was a a scary event. It was a wake up call. Very expensive, (laughs) you know. But I think that was the the first major, you know, where we're trying to figure out how do we house a whole bunch of people in in a day in a notice, community, yeah, like overnight, over overnight. literally within hours. Well, let, let's maybe switch to. You've both told me stories in the past about ways that you've dealt with these situations in the moment, and you know, you've talked a little bit about the training. But what are some of the things that you found that were assets that you weren't expecting, or that you were expecting to help in these situations? Like basically, how's your campus been the beacon of hope in this Armageddon that we've just talked through? <laughs> well, I know that you know our uh, board and our college president they did uh, they reduced the property tax levy, uh, so you know that saved the taxpayers in Central Nebraska you know two million dollars that were devastated by these events. So that has alleviated some of that burden, but 
of course, we're still not fully recovered. We're still recovering. You know, I think maybe as opposed to other colleges at uh, Central, at Central, we have, you know, 70% of our students are below the poverty level. And um, we also have a lot of migrants from different countries. And so there's over 50 languages spoken. So one thing that we did do is create communication with the emergency management office in multiple languages and offer, you know, where those shelters are and how to get there, you know, where those uh, supplies are for those that are displaced. So that is one beacon of hope, I guess that I can bring to the table. And we keep this planning going. We don't end with that one event. Right. We're still planning for our next event, unfortunately, but it's better to be prepared. And one thing that our emergency management director did mention is a lot of times in your community, people don't talk to your neighbors anymore. And in rural communities, that's I guess more common than urban that uh, you do talk to your neighbors. So, you know, get to know your neighbors and they're there, you know, as a team, you can work together when some of these events occur. Right. I, I, in my neighborhood, my neighbor is a fireman and uh, we have a a vet in the summer. It was like a night out and he actually gets us to pick people up in stretchers like made out of tarps and sticks and stuff like that it's kind of fun (laughs) yeah that was part of our training we learned how to do all the carries you know to carry people out of a a disaster event yeah that's great how about you sheree i i think ben that's really important and that's something this idea of communication and that's something that our campus certainly found ourselves serving for the community was the point of communication on what's happening and you know i've been thinking a lot about this and ever since we had the initial conversation about the AC presentation and the idea of a rural campus and really how does that differ from an urban campus. And it, it greatly differs dramatically. You know, a rural community is different than an urban community. Um, we found ourselves after the campfire, our campus and the campus website, I think, was the most visited, most trusted resource of full-scale information on what was going on and what to do. So, uh, the, in fact, the FAQs page is still live, but um, it's an exhaustive list on what's happening, what to do, where to go. And, you know, that, that was real-time posted live as we had information. You know, our campus and our community served a really important community function during those events, like hosting community events. There is physically no other space in our community to gather 300 people and have a community meeting other than our campus. Like that just doesn't exist. And so that's something that you would find in an urban setting with different recital halls and different event venues. But, you know, that just it was not something that existed. And so, you know, our campus hosted community meetings, provided information out back out to the community. Our campus has the tallest buildings in our county and probably surrounding for a hundred miles. Um, so there are repeaters on the top of our buildings for first responder communication. So physically you're, you're, our you're physical trained. infrastructure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Is allowing first responders to communicate with one another. Um, you know, our campus is a, is a shelter for first responders and that type of infrastructure typically exists in other settings in an urban situation or in other buildings and infrastructure. Right. Yeah. Typically on all, in all of our communities, we're one of the largest meeting places like Cherie mentioned, um, in that community. So we serve as that community meeting place when the, when these events occur. So Cherie, you, you mentioned the dam, which was crazy, but maybe not as bad as we thought. It was a little scarier than, than, but some of the other disasters you've experienced in your community have been just completely unbelievably horrible. So can you tell us, maybe start with the car fire and then the campfire, just, just a little bit of the background for people that aren't familiar with what happened? Yes, and I, I will clarify that the dam the dam was very scary, and it did cause a lot of damage and a lot of destruction, and I think um, really opened a lot of people's eyes to maintaining our infrastructure, but also preparing for these crazy Fair climate enough. events. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but there weren't it. any lives lost, you know. Yeah, there you know there weren't many. We didn't wipe out a whole community or anything. Um, 
So that was, that happened in, um, gosh, it must've been that same year in January. And then that following August, I, technically, I think it was the last few days of July, um, of 2018 that the car fire hit, um, the Reading area. And that was sparked by a vehicle, a chain dragging off of a vehicle and sparked a fire. Is that why it's called the car fire? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's named yeah. after the source of the fire, not like right. some guy named C-A-R-R or <laughs> no. something like that. Okay. And that just because we'd had all this heavy precipitation, but then no rain, right? So all of, every, all of the vegetation that had kind of slowly died off during the drought, we had this super wet winter lots of precipitation, all of this fuel grows and normal Northern California summers, I mean, it's dry, right? We get our, which most people in Northern California think that that's totally normal across the country, not realizing that most people get rain throughout the year. (laughs) Um, It usually stops raining around April in Northern California and then usually picks back up again, October, November. Um, but, uh, you know, that obviously is changing now. It's kind of nice to be here in Atlanta in the rain. Yeah, I haven't been in the rain in like two months. Uh, so it's nice to know that it's still raining somewhere. Um, <laughs> anyway, back to 2018. So we had all this precipitation, all of this vegetation grows, and then um, really hot summer. And all that vegetation dies off. And, and this is combined with years of drought vegetation that had died off. And so the car fire burned so hot and so rapidly, um, it actually created, I think it might've been the first instance where the fire tornado, fire NATO was actually seen where you have a fire that creates its own weather system, um, because it was so hot, uh, creating its own winds, making it really difficult to fight, um, but fueling itself basically. And so that fire moved really rapidly, you know, my best friend's family lost their home, several homes, um, her in-laws and her sister. And, you know, I know lots of people in our community that have lost homes in that fire. Uh, there were a few lives lost and it was, it was really devastating for a lot of people. And then when the campfire came, just a few months later, that that brought a whole new level of devastation that I don't think anybody ever anticipated, ever. And that fire was caused by the utilities infrastructure. Uh, PG&E is the utility provider in that region, and um, there was an ignition along their transmission line. Basically a tree falling on the lines, sparking or something? Um, I can't remember exactly what the final cause was. I don't think it was a tree. I think it was just a loose wire, but um, it was their infrastructure that ultimately was the source of ignition. And then again, because everything was so dry, this is November 8th of 2018, and we hadn't had any rain since the previous spring. So everything was super dry. Um, And then that, you know, again, we have all this fuel and the fire just, it moved so quickly, again, creating its own weather system that people couldn't react. And so there were 85 lives lost in that fire, um, mostly from uh, people who either couldn't evacuate their homes. A lot of elderly folks, a lot of people who don't have transportation. Uh, The Paradise community, you know, was a a small community. And there were a lot of low-income folks who lived in Paradise. It was a retirement community, a lot of people living on fixed incomes, um, a lot of people living in mobile home parks without transportation. And those are are most of the lives who were lost for people who just couldn't get out quick enough. Right. I remember that morning, you know, I I live in Chico and uh, I looked out my window and I was like, wow, that's a really dark rain cloud. <laughs> and then I go outside and I'm like, that's definitely not a rain cloud, but it was black. And, you know, what sticks out to me is that this fire was not just a wildland fire. It was not just a forest fire. This was a, a town that burned down. So that comes with buildings and cars and mattresses and tires and everything else that's in people's homes. So this was not a normal fire. Yeah, it doesn't you know? smell like a campfire. It's not an no. unlike the name, I suppose. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the black smoke uh, was just incredible. It was just really, really scary. 
And the fire, it kind of continued to spread and it got within about a, a mile and a half of my house. And so, you know, I was prepared to hit the road as I have a house full of evacuees oh, right. yeah. <laughs> who had just lost everything, lucky to get out, had to drive through flames to get out of the fire. And then here we are like, we're going to have to go again, guys. You know, that's, that, that mentally takes its toll on yeah, people. That's, that's wild. Yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, the town is still, I mean, there's not much of a town there left, right? No, it's completely gone. And there were a handful of structures that survived, but about 95% of the town is gone. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Again. Which, which comes with other ripple effects, right? So it's not just homes and lives that were lost. It's businesses and livelihoods that right. were lost. And so many businesses are gone, right? Just because they financially can't support themselves. So how, and they were small businesses to begin with, you know, they're not large chains. Um, a lot of them were small, locally owned shops. You know, my sister-in-law lost her job because she works for the waste hauler. And when you work for the waste hauler and 92% of your customers, customers are gone, are gone yeah. you can't survive that. Wow. Right. So, you know, there's this other financial resilience idea of how do you financially rebound? Right. Yeah. No, that's, again, it's not the kind of thing, just like you don't plan for giant ice buckets coming, or ice, ice blocks coming down <laughs> ice and taking out your bridge. Yeah. <laughs> you don't really plan for the, the town just not being there at all. Right. right? Yeah. All right. Well, anything else you want to add to that? Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think I bring up the analogy of it's the climate on steroids. So it's not a one-time event where, you know, a baseball player, they hit a home run once in, you know, a season or something like that. You know, it's a, a player that could hit 70 home runs in a season, which is unnatural. And that's due to, particularly in the central United States, the climate on steroids is that increased amount of water vapor in the atmosphere because of the higher temperatures. And then we see these huge fluctuations now in temperatures because there's no stability with the ice that's the sea ice that's typically up in the North Pole. Now, when those fronts come in from the Gulf of Mexico, there's nothing to keep them south and they just keep going up, up through the central United States because we don't have the mountain ranges that you have in California. Right. But, you know, so that cold hurricane just kept going up and, you know, a hurricane in the middle of Nebraska, people wouldn't think about that in March, you know. <laughs> you don't prepare for that. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Well, so what, one question before. I, I want to get to students here in a second, but one question or something you said earlier, Ben, is that you don't stop planning like this is continual process this is not like write a plan put it on on a big document and put it on your shelf kind of thing like can you talk maybe both of you talk a little bit about what does that even mean what does planning mean yeah so through our resiliency committee um you know we we go beyond our campus and we're working with the community so we've formed a lot of these partnerships with the emergency management office uh, with the parks department uh, so the, it has resulted in some of these partnerships that the college didn't have before because of this event. And so we planned to do things proactively as a college and a community. Uh, so some of the things that we're doing are uh, we've increased the bike trail connections in the community. So more people are biking and walking to work or to campus. Uh, so that's one thing that we've done. Uh, it resulted in uh, inner city bus transit study. So there's three communities, Grand Island, Kearney, and Hastings, and they're all about 30 minutes apart. And a lot of people travel between those three communities. Well, now they're planning a bus route, a fixed bus route uh, that we didn't have before. I don't know. It is a plan, like you mentioned, <laughs> but uh, I'm hoping that it comes to fruition in the next few years. Uh, so that's one thing. And then students and staff are now more aware of these events. And so we talk about them like at our Earth Month this year, uh, we're going to show the And the Floods Came documentary, which is about this whole event. Okay. Uh, it's a PBS documentary. And we're going to show that to our entire campus. Nice. Yeah. yeah. We'll link to that in the show notes. That'd be cool to check out. But, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, Maybe a little depressing, but we'll <laughs> yeah, given your... Um, how about you, Cherie? What, how, what does planning look like? <laughs> you are absolutely right that it's not a plan that goes on a shelf and is forgotten about. It's a, <laughs> or if it's it is, it's it got burned, it gets burned up or <laughs> washed <laughs> away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, it's an iterative process, right? It, we just keep keep plugging away, keep making progress. The Chico State President, President Gail Hutchinson, has released her strategic priorities. And one of those three strategic priorities is resilient and sustainable systems. And so um, there's a handful of us on campus that have been tasked with developing those plans. What does that mean to be a resilient and sustainable campus? Uh, we have committed to being carbon neutral for scopes one, two, and three by 2030. Um, so that's part of our strategy. But building resilience into the curriculum, into our infrastructure, into business continuity. You know, when the campfire hit, we closed campus for uh, more than a week, and that was right before Thanksgiving break. So how do you continue instruction when you lose a week of class time? So, you know, looking at these types of things, but then also looking again at, at our role as a community member. And so we're looking at establishing a resilience collaboratory where people can come. Um, collaboratory? A, collaboratory. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> where people can come, um, a physical space for people to connect and talk about the work that they're doing, meet other in, people in the community that are doing similar work. You know, that networking, that inspiration, the resource sharing. Sure. We are a rural area, yeah. so resources are always the number one thing that everybody needs to, to get their work done. Um, so we're in the process right now of building those plans and what that looks like for our campus. So it's, it's a lot more facilitation of, of different things that are already going on rather than like trying to dream up the perfect solution to these things you can't anticipate. There's no perfect solution. Yeah, right. that's, okay. that's not a thing. I mean, it's probably hanging out somewhere with the unicorns. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, and one more question before we get to students. Um, ben, you'd mentioned the term unnatural disaster and how, how does that term go over in your community? Because a lot of places we can't even say climate change still in this country. Right, and um, I think it resonates with our district. They get it. Farmers, they're always planning ahead. Uh, they're planning for the next weather event. They're watching the weather when they get up at five in the morning, you know, to see what it's going to be like. Uh, so when they have to prepare for these events, which is their livelihood, you know, they want to know when these next events are coming, but they're not predictable anymore. So a lot of the farmers get it. They don't want to call it climate change. <laughs> they're calling it a natural disaster. I call it unnatural because the climate on steroids that I already mentioned, but yeah. uh, so they're, they're trying to prepare for these things and it devastates, you know, our whole district when we have one of these events and there's a billion dollars lost in ranching and, and farming because that's a big property tax base. So, you know, those are things that it does resonate with our board. It resonates with the utility companies. You know, I'm, I'm not afraid to use the term climate change, but, sure. uh, you know, if I don't want to turn off a certain community or a certain district, I'd much rather focus on these severe weather events that are occurring more often. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> Call it late to dinner if you want, but yeah, they make you tweak your head a little bit to, to hear it, but you know what they mean. That's great. All right, students. That's why universities exist first and foremost to educate students and conduct research. How has this connected to your student population? I mean, you've mentioned a few things already, like with the trainings and things, but those are more kind of like using student labor, I suppose, which has its own kind of morality around it. But anyway, but how, as in the main mission of the university, how has this intersected? So many ways. It's impacted our students and um, like I guess the kind of layers and levels, I guess. There's the physical impact where, you know, we had, I don't even know how many, I think it was more than 100 students who lost their homes in the, in the campfire. You know, students whose families lost their homes in the car fire. So there's the, the physical loss that has impacted our students. And, you know, we, the campus, the Wildcats Rise, created a fund um, where people could donate. And those funds were then redistributed to our staff and students and faculty who lost their homes and, and lost things to kind of get them physically back on their feet. 
But there's a research side to it where our students are now having, you know, hands-on research opportunities in studying things like erosion in a burn scar. Um, And so, you know, our students working with faculty are able to go out and do environmental measurements and and actually study erosion impacts and um, water quality impacts and things like that. Um, We have, you know, architecture and engineering students who are getting involved in the rebuild process and learning, but also lending their expertise and knowledge to rebuilding structures, to redesigning things. Um, so there, there's kind of this hands-on field service curriculum component that's that's available for our students and, and faculty and staff as well. Um, but then there's this broader, higher level conversation about climate change. And, you know, I loved Gina McCarthy's chant yesterday, climate change is real. <laughs> Say it, everybody. Climate, climate change, change is, is real. real. Yeah. <laughs> right? um, so... It's a real thing, um, and I've heard I heard it last year at the Second Nature Summit, and I've heard it several times since that we are institutions of higher education, and we have an obligation to educate every single one of our students about climate change and the role that they play in addressing it, mitigating it, planning for it, changing, you know, building infrastructure around it. So uh, we're working on a curriculum redesign to implement as um, making sure that climate change and resilience is part of every student's curriculum who graduates from Chico State. That's just your moral responsibility, essentially. Yeah, we need need our engineers to know that they play an important role in designing systems, infrastructure, and facilities. Um, We need our social workers. We need our nurses, our public health people, um, our geographers and planners, our our history faculty and and students to continue to educate us about history. It touches every field in right. their own it way. Does. And how do you make those connections and right. how do you make it relevant? And, right. Yeah. How about you, Ben? What'd... Yeah, I guess there was, you know, we mentioned it was a more conservative area. And, you know, I've been at the college for three years now. And, you know, I I lived on the West Coast. I lived in Chicago, you know, where I guess they like to call it more fiscally conservative. Uh, so they're... And then now with this event, uh, I had been pushing to get a renewable energy program since day one when I was on the job. And so we had the curriculum approved and, you know, there was a holding period. Like, is it, is, are there going to be jobs? You know, is there enough equipment? So I say fiscally conservative. Yeah. They wanted to prove it first sure. yeah. that we needed this program and why. And so that program did get pushed through, you know, I guess the sense of urgency maybe after this event. That program was pushed through in July. We hired uh, energy technology faculty and it's not only focused on, you know, the tech job or the tech jobs, uh, wind turbine and solar tech jobs, but also the management. So working with SCADA systems, working with battery storage. uh, Mm -hmm. So being really innovative in a fiscally conservative area sure and those jobs are there you know in nebraska we have land an abundance of land um, if it's not farmland so we do have um you it's know, a little windy too I yeah know. we <laughs> have some we have some big wind turbines wind farms solar farms i mean we iowa was the start of that and nebraska is seeing those benefits but slower and so now we're you know, it's booming in central Nebraska. So we do have that energy tech program uh, that's been a year in existence. And all of those students, you know, they all have summer internships. Talk about jobs in central Nebraska. Uh, you didn't have those jobs before. Right. And, and now we have those. Uh, and then also um, besides that, we have something called an e-badge. It's something on your transcript that you do outside of class for sustainability and so those students are getting an actual certificate that's free to register for that they're doing something for sustainability and they can show to their potential employer Uh, and then one other thing with sense of urgency you know we had an intro to sustainability course that was also two years in the planning process well with this event there was more of a sense of urgency and now i can say that class will be offered next fall 
the events had a way of focusing uh, the efforts, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah and, then, and I'm going to be happy to be the instructor for that course oh, as well. Yeah, so. Sharit, do you want to introduce our newest guest that just came into the middle of our recording? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> this is the president of California State University, Chico, Dr. Gail Hutchinson. Great. Good morning. Good, good to have you here. Thank you for taking some time out of the conference. Our first question is easy. How, how do you like the conference? I love this conference. Um, this is my second time coming. First time was last year when it was held in Phoenix. What I love about it is it's an opportunity to come together with other presidents and chancellors, sustainability officers, uh, investors, and start talking about what matters in life, which is the impacts of climate change. Great to have you here. We've been talking for the last about 45 minutes about some of the, what Ben's been calling unnatural disasters that you've experienced on your campus. So I know you're, what, a couple of years into your job this, at Chico? I'm finishing my fourth year as president. Okay. And yeah. I've been at Chico State a total of 27 years. Okay. So you're familiar with the community, but when, you know, when they, I don't know how one applies to become a president of a university, but I assume that a lot of the things you've experienced over the last four years were probably not in the job description. So can you talk about what it's been like being the president through all these events that we've already heard about. When we start thinking about becoming a president, uh, oftentimes we'll go to professional development and we'll get a, a module on emergency preparedness. <laughs> and, uh, and I pay attention on those emergency preparedness, but I never expected uh, a couple of months into my presidency that we would be met with some of the disasters that we had. So we, if you're familiar, we had a spillway of a, of a very large dam threaten the community and had an evacuation of around 250,000 people. And then we've had the campfire where right. we had the evacuation of 52,000 people in a matter of hours. You know, 85 uh, folks who lost their lives and 52,000 displaced almost instantly. So yes, you're right. Um, preparing for those types of things, I think we all have our emergency preparedness plans as, as campuses and we all have our business continuity plans. But the real test comes when the, the emergency or disaster occurs. And I'm, I'm really pleased and honored and proud to say that when that happens, all of us at Chico State did what everyone in the community did, which is rolled up our sleeves, leaned in, and figured out how we could help. What are, what are some of the specific things that you think were in place that did prepare you for that? And maybe what are some of the things that you now, if you have to go through it again, you'll be better prepared the next time around. I, I think for me, I've, you know, for me personally, um, I've always been trained in first aid and emergency and have always and have had a num number of personal experiences throughout my career where I've had to act and I tend to lean into emergencies. So that's on a personal note. So sure. I think, I think individuals taking kind of a inventory of how they respond in a moment of emergency is important. Uh, the other is surrounding yourself with good folks and also making sure those folks are really well prepared and go through tabletop exercises, understand what the emergency plan is, really literally talk about it in the event of, do scenario planning. So we had done some of that and I was surrounded by incredible professionals who then came into the emergency operations center. With the campfire, we were in the emergency operations center for a period of 18 days, pretty much nonstop. So we responded well, and then what did we do? With the campfire, if you're familiar with the geography, as a crow flies, I think the fires started probably within 20 miles of where we live in Chico. But it came through a very mountainous area, incredible steep canyons, with a wind that was howling. It made the fire move at speeds we've never seen before. And as it kind of consumed mountain ridge after mountain ridge, it started consuming communities. And in a very fast period of time, communities were just pretty much gone, the largest being uh, the town of Paradise. And then as the fire came down the ridge and toward the valley, I would say burned very close to Chico, city of Chico proper, and ultimately burned probably within five miles or so of the campus itself. We're a campus of 17,000 in a city of Chico, which at the time was around 90,000. Since the fire, we are now a population of 112,000. Wow. And it was at a time where, where many of our students were away for the weekend, and so it was relatively easy to cancel classes uh, as we saw the, um, the extent of the emergency. And it really backed right up to our break we have over Thanksgiving. So ultimately, we ended up closing campus for two weeks, which was perfect. It gave us plenty of time. 
And in that time, uh, the campus stepped forward and we served as uh, a place for first responders to stay, first responders to shower. We were able to help those students who had no place to go uh, in our residence halls, our international students. Uh, we also created an opportunity for communities to come together in our large auditoria and have community meetings and really be able to get emergency information out. One of the things that I know worked really well was we established a web page where we had frequently asked questions. And not only was that um, a communication venue for campus people itself, but it became a, a really important communication bot for the community. So we were constantly posting questions, giving up-to-date information, helping not only people know what's going on on campus, but what resources were available for people in the community. And as we went, we began thinking about other ways we could help. A number of our campus folks volunteered. Our nursing students helped set up shelters. Our forensic anthropologists were first on the scene with human identification recovery, remain recovery. Wow. Um, and we also, you know, and as the emergency keeps going, uh, we had also started doing contingency planning, like how could we help with the 3,000, 5,000 school children who were displaced and how we might pull them into the campus and offer them classrooms, et cetera, wow. yeah. and how we can be, you know, supportive. And then I think uh, once the acute period was over, I mean, the fire burned for, what, 18 days or so, and then the acute period is over, people are still trying to figure out where they're going and what resources were available as FEMA came in and as other uh, support agencies came in. We did our best to help people understand where those resources were. We also did our due diligence to find out where our people, our staff and students and faculty, who was burned out in the fire. Because you're the first responder, but you're also the people affected. Yeah. Right? For, yeah. Many of our staff folk lived up in paradise and, and came, to, came to work. So as it went on, I appointed a university liaison for the campfire. That person remains. I mean, she's doing a great job. Her name is Megan Kurtz. And she's involved in all the leadership efforts in the community to rebuild the area. We continue. We got a faculty group together. That faculty group started looking at how they could uh, engage our students in service learning projects, how we could have the curricula really work to help out. And I think our faculty are doing a fantastic job. Our students are incredibly involved, whether they're doing volunteerism up on the ridge or helping to build sheds for people who need storage or helping to build a historic wooden bridge that uh, is known as the Honey Run Bridge. So our students and our faculty and our staff, for that matter, are involved uh, every place possible. I've got a number of staff people. One is um, Mike Guzzi, who's really great with facilities and construction, and he's an engineer by trade. He's doing some volunteer work with some projects that are going on. Cherie is uh, heavily involved. So we've got people across the campus. And then there's the area of scholarship. So we're doing um, scholarship in water contaminants, fire mitigation, fire education, uh, other resiliency type of efforts, and recording all of that as well, building an internal database that we hope to be able to share one day externally. So we, uh, we don't see this as it was an acute emergency and a disaster. We now you're done. Job, yeah. we're done. Yeah. Uh, because we are a community and because Chico State is very much a part of the region and a leader in the region, we see ourselves committed for the long haul. Very good. Yeah. Well, I've got roots. My mom was actually born in Chico, California. Seriously? Yeah, yeah <laughs> actually. Yeah. Well, one of, the, one of the questions that I always ask anytime I get a chance to talk to a president is the following, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch it up a little bit for you just because of this conversation. Uh, the question I ask is how often or how much of your day do you get to think about, you know, sustainability, uh, these topics, resiliency, you know, carbon mitigation? Because my sense is normally, I mean, presidents generally have a lot on their plate. And this is like maybe one thing that they get to think about. You have a, probably a quite different perspective than the average president having lived through all these things. But maybe the question I would ask you would be, what advice would you give to folks like Cherie and Ben, if they're talking to their president about how to be prepared for these things, how to get on their radar in their busy schedule, short of having these disasters, which are, you know, that's, that's a way to do it, but probably not the recommended way to do it. I think that's a great question. Um, 
For me personally, I'm, I'm looking at it in two ways, one through operations for the institution and the other through curricula, which I would say would include teaching and service and, and scholarship. And I would provide that president or provide the department chair, the dean, the provost, the vice president for business and finance, anyone who would listen, the most up-to-date information. As presidents, we're hungry for information. We're constantly uh, looking for the latest and most reliable data around higher education trends specifically. And climate impact and climate effect is something that we all need to be paying attention to. So if your president is aware, then feed them with the information as you get it so that they have it at their fingertips. Uh, if your president is not aware, then I would try to make that appointment and hopefully you get in to see them. And if you don't, uh, don't give up. I would just send them the information and send that information around what the institution can be doing to achieve climate neutrality through operations, but also the importance of educating our students because the power of our future, I believe, lies with our students. And we also have the responsibility to make sure that we lead through our operations. So at Chico State, before all of these disasters, we started a very inclusive strategic planning process. And I was adamant uh, in the process that it would be wonderfully inclusive. And at the end, we would end up with three strategic priorities that would drive us. I was hopeful that folks would understand the importance of equity, diversity, and inclusion, as well as resilient and sustainable systems. And then also uh, civic and global engagement. And the um, campus did, and the community did not disappoint. So those are our three strategic priorities. And they're not rank ordered in any way, but it's equity, diversity, inclusion, which we know relates specifically to uh, sustainability, and then also resilient, sustainable systems. And we went with systems because we need to be taking a more systems approach to all of these challenges that, that we have and understand the intersections and the integration. And then, of course, the civic and global engagement, which we always want our students to be involved on the ground floor, but we want to be involved as well. And I love the term I learned yesterday from a president. He was calling it, I think he called it global. So local. it's a combination of global and local and local. So everything he does is global, and I'm going to adopt that as everything at Chico State. We're going to be moving in that direction in terms of everything being global. All right, that's our third mashup word of the podcast. Yeah. So what was your, you had uh, collaboratory and, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Ben, ben uses unnatural disaster as, a, as an yeah, alternative, which is great. So global, okay. All right, that's great. What, what are you looking forward to in the next, hopefully preparing for, the future, but as uh, Chico looks forward, how do you feel prepared for the next time this comes around or sharing what you've learned or, I don't know, tell, tell us what's coming up. Yeah, I think, uh, so Chico State was one of the original signatories on the climate uh, agreement with Second Nature and uh, we did, we've done extremely well. We've done really good foundational work. But over the last couple of years, I think we re-examined what we were doing and understand that we need to ramp it up. So I'm really thankful that I have Cherie <laughs> and uh, also Mike Guzzi and, and wonderful faculty, wonderful staff who really embrace this. But we're going to be looking at how we ramp it up over the next couple of years. Uh, we're serious about achieving climate neutrality, but I won't understate that we have a, a challenge ahead of us. So as long as we're making better than progress, or as long as we're making significant progress, I think we can achieve our goal, you know, hopefully within 10 years. I'd love for it to be soon. Right. So, Very good. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk yeah, to us thanks today. thanks for having me. Yeah, no, this was great. It. Yeah. Thanks for bringing your president. That was kind of fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just last question to wrap things up. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to get in touch? And, and what, what kind of ways would you want people to get in touch? What are the things that you would like them to reach out to you individually for versus, you know, things that you might point them to? No, I think just getting the process started, like a lot of the campuses that I've been talking to at the summit, they don't know where to get started with resiliency planning. And, you know, we signed that commitment. We made that a priority. And, you know, how I started that process was, you know, I guess in a rural area, it was reaching out to community members and you know, inviting them to a lunch and all get together and share ideas. So just sharing how that process got started and how they can make it move forward, they can reach out to me for that. Okay, great. That's good. <laughs> and we'll, we'll have contact info in the, in the show notes and whatnot. So Okay, great. great. 
Yeah, um, anything. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I... I think it's important for all of us to stay in touch with each other. I mean, I've learned so much from Ben and what he's done and how he's done it, but also Black Hill State University was on the panel with us at Aishi and all the universities that I've met here at Second Nature. Keeping these conversations going, I think are really important. I, I guess specific things for us, I mean, if anybody wants to know what happens when the town next door burns down. <laughs> You're the person to call, huh? Super depressing, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, we are, like like our president said, we were an initial founding signatory of the climate commitment. And as I've mentioned, that has changed and evolved over the years. And so I'm happy to share that evolution and, you know, what that looks like, I guess now 13 years ago versus now and, and how things have changed. Very good. Well, I appreciate you guys taking time out of the conference. I know this is like special time to get to meet folks, but uh, getting up early, finding a room in the back of the conference center, <laughs> pulling a president in for a conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having yes, me. Thanks for inviting me. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Kaya Finlay for her production assistance. You can find show notes, transcripts, and contact details for our guests on our website at campusenergypodcast.com. If you'd like to follow our show on social media, Our Twitter handle is at Energy Podcast. You can find us on LinkedIn by searching for Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes or just sending a link to a friend. As always, thanks for listening.